Well, good evening. We are going to be looking at these passages, particularly from 2 Kings 21 and uh, Hebrews chapter 8. You can turn to 2 Kings 21 in the Church Bible if you like. Each month when we have the newcomer's dinner, I usually tell the story of uh, when our church started in our living room in 2003. That's not really true because we began as a mission of the Church of Rwanda. The Church of Rwanda just celebrated its 100th anniversary. The Church of Rwanda was started uh, by the Church Mission Society, which itself was started by William Wilberforce in 1799, uh, which was a part of the Church of England, which began in the English Reformation, uh, but actually dates all the way back to the first century when Christians who spread out from Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus went all over the world and English Christianity began around the end of the first or beginning of the second century. But even if we trace this church all the way back to Pentecost, we have to go further and remember that Jesus came to fulfill uh, the story of the people of God that began with Abraham. And so really, our story is the story that goes all the way back to him. It's just not true for us to say that we're only 15 or 16 years old. Uh, we read this story, this old story from the Bible, to remember who we are. You heard the old saying, those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. We live in an age of great forgetfulness regarding so many things that we once knew, things like virtue and integrity and civility and the common good. And part of the blame for the collective amnesia of our broader culture lies on the modern church. Um, we forget the past, not only to our peril, but also um, for the death of the world. Peter Lightheart says, our forgetfulness of the past produces churches without root or rudder who trim their sails to every new wind of doctrine. That's why we as a church study the Bible, including the Old Testament, so that we may no longer be tossed to and fro like children by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. And the story of the rise and fall of Israel that's told in First and Second Kings is the story of forgetfulness. That's really what it's about. Um, and it's very much relevant to us as a 21st century Anglican congregation. We study this story to remember our past and to know who we are. It's a tragic tale of forgetfulness, this uh, story from the book of Kings. God's intended end for Israel was that they become a light to the other nations, a porch light welcoming all people home to God. Instead, they forgot the Lord, they forgot His word, they forgot the covenant that they had made with Him, Again and again, God sent the prophets to, to them to warn them and tell them, remember, remember, remember the Lord. Yet Israel kept forgetting the Lord. And it was to their peril. Eventually, God, nevertheless, did not forget them. And after centuries of reminding them, God finally scattered them like dust in the wind. Instead of the end that God had intended for them, Israel came to a bitter, dead end. 
Last Sunday, we read the story of the fall of the northern kingdom centered out of Samaria, uh, carted off by the Assyrians into exile around 722 BC. Around that same time, King Hezekiah in Jerusalem in the south uh, had, he, he had a baby whose name is Manasseh. Um, Hezekiah had instituted some godly reforms that helped keep the country going for a season. Uh, but when Manasseh came along, everything fell apart. Manasseh means forgetfulness in Hebrew. And he was the very worst of the kings of Judah because he forgot the Lord and he led his nation to destruction. But God did not forget. The Bible says that it was because of Manasseh's sin, because of Manasseh in particular, that God handed over Judah to Babylon in 586. Forgetfulness is part of the human condition. Sometimes it's a good thing whenever we are able to forget past hurts or hardships and we can move on. Sometimes it's a pain in the neck when you lose your keys or your wallet or your phone. Sometimes it's even much more catastrophic when you forget something that's really important. You forget to take your medicine, you forget your spouse's birthday, or worst of all, when you forget the Lord. There are some things that we must not forget, and God is first among them. Yet he's the one that we most often forget, and that's not okay. What hope is there for our problem of forgetfulness? What are we to do? We need to be completely overhauled in his image to become people who remember who we are, remember who we were made to be. And that's what we're going to be exploring from these passages today, moving from forgetfulness to forgiveness. Uh, but first, let's pray together. We thank you, God, for your word and for the hope of becoming more and more like you, being redeemed by you, and changed to become like you. We pray that you would open your word to us this evening and that we would, by hearing from you, be transformed in your image. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us so that we might understand and follow uh, as you lead us out from here this evening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to move through this passage from first, or 2 Kings 21, uh, looking first of all at Manasseh's forgetfulness and ours, then looking at God's perfect memory, and then moving to Hebrews chapter 8 to think about godly memory and godly forgetfulness. So first of all, Manasseh's forgetfulness and ours. Verse 1, chapter 21 of 2 Kings, page 282 in the Church Bible, says Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. King Manasseh was not the first Manasseh in the Bible. There's another one that we encountered many, many chapters ago in Genesis. Uh, the son of Joseph, Joseph after he was rescued from prison in Egypt, after he was elevated to be the right-hand man of the Pharaoh, uh, he got married, he had a baby, and he named the baby Manasseh, which means forgetfulness. For, Joseph said, God has made me forget all my hardship, all the bad things that happened to me way back when. That's one of the blessings of forgetfulness, being able to move on past uh, old hurts and hardships. King Manasseh, many, many years later, was born in Jerusalem at the time of Hezekiah and at the time that the northern kingdom was being carted off into exile. His dad, Hezekiah, may have named him Manasseh uh, 
in, in a similar way to Joseph, wanting to forget about the hardships of the Assyrians trying to cart Jerusalem away. Or he may have been named Manasseh for political reasons, to try to appeal to the huge uh, plot of land that was owned by the tribe of Manasseh. And uh, Hezekiah wanted to regain that territory after the Assyrians had taken it. We don't know why he was named Manasseh, but the name takes on a tremendously different significance after his 55 years of evil uh, reign. We see this in, in verse 2. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Each kingdom in Israel's history um, has its own scoundrel. In the north, it was Ahab with his witch queen Jezebel. In the south, it was Manasseh. What Manasseh did as king uh, was to complete the iniquity, to complete the sin of the southern kingdom. In verses 3 through 7, we're presented with a list of seven wicked things that Manasseh did as king. Starting in verse 3, the first thing, he rebuilt the high places that his father had torn down. And secondly, he erected altars for Baal and for Asherah just as Ahab and Jezebel had done up north. Thirdly, he worshipped all the starry hosts of heaven, the zodiac of, of gods, the pantheon uh, zodiac that the other nations worshipped. Fourthly, he displaced the Lord from the Jerusalem temple by building an altar to those zodiac gods in the temple itself in Jerusalem. And in fifth, he burned his son on that altar in the temple to the Lord. Sixth, he brought in black magic into the temple. And they were doing fortune-telling and omens and mediums and necromancers, all so that they might know the future. They weren't calling on God for, for knowledge or for help. They were calling on this black magic. And then lastly, seventh, he brought a carved idol of Asherah, the uh, feminine goddess, into the Jerusalem temple, just as Ahab and Jezebel had done in Samaria. Manasseh copied all these detectable practices from the surrounding nations, while at the same time, if you look at verse 8, he was forgetting that God's provision of their land was contingent upon their remaining in covenant with him. It was Manasseh's, Manasseh's duty as king to remember God's law. Uh, think of him as the guy that signed the lease on the land of Israel. Um, even though there were many people who were living there with him, his name was on the lease. He was the person who was responsible for their bad behavior. The last tenants who had lived there before them had torn the place up. They had wrecked the place terribly. And so God brought in Israel so that they could make the place sparkle. But instead, they were worse than the original tenants. And so God decided, verse 9, this, uh, this double entendre here, See this in verse 9. Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed for them. Who led them astray? Manasseh. What does Manasseh mean? Forgetfulness. So what led them astray? Forgetfulness led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done before them. And from this point on in 2 Kings, Every time Manasseh comes up, it's that forgetfulness that is being given the blame 
for the downfall of the nation of Judah. It's safe to say that Manasseh didn't set out to destroy Israel. Um, he must have thought that all of this innovation he was doing, the religious innovation, bringing in the zodiac, bringing in child sacrifice in the temple, and all that sort of thing, he must have thought somehow that that was good for the nation. But whether by accident or through intention, he forgot his relationship with God and his responsibility as king. And forgetfulness led to the destruction of the nation. Forgetfulness is part of the human condition. I want to tell you a story about how forgetfulness works. Uh, I, I hope it connects. <laughs> I remember long ago, uh, a summer day, when my uncle took his family and our family boating in South Carolina on the Cooper River. And at some point, uh, he stopped the boat, and a number of us got out in the river to swim, including my dad. And we were swimming around, and at some point we looked up, and I remember seeing the boat pulling away with my uncle in it. And we were out in deep water, and I remember feeling really frightened. And I remember looking over at my dad, and a couple of the little kids were climbing on him, and he was in the deep water, and he was struggling, and I can remember he looked really frightened as well. And then I remember my uncle coming back just in the nick of time, and all of us being rescued. Now, all of this happened at least 40 years ago, and um, it's fuzzy. The details are fuzzy to me, because since then I have heard this story told over and over again at weddings and at funerals and birthday parties by so many different family members, each with their own embellishments, some who weren't even there when it happened. The story has been told over and over again, and so a lot of the details are foggy at this point. Was my uncle drunk or was he sober? Did he cut the anchor rope or did he pull it up? Uh, did it take him 30 seconds to get there or did it take him 30 minutes? Nobody really knows the answer to these questions anymore because everybody has told the story and everybody remembers what happened. And because everybody remembers, the story keeps changing over and over again when they're retelling it's not just my family who does this. You know, the current working hypothesis for uh, the way memory works among neuroscientists is that our brains revise our memories every time they pull up some memory. Every time you pull it up uh, and, and remember it, when you file it away again, you're filing it away with the experience of remembering it and perhaps the experience of retelling it as well. So you pull up memory 1.0, but when you file it away, you'll never see memory 1.0 again. It'll be changed. And over time, if you access it many times and put it away many times, it can morph from one thing to another. Which explains how important memories can change over time and also explains in part how we can gradually shift in our commitments, things we remember having said, but we shift over time, uh, revisiting and revising the promises that we've made to one another and to the Lord. So, for example, let's say you moved to Washington with a strong sense of purpose, and you may vividly remember uh, the reason you came when you moved here. But over time, 
um, life has been hard, and uh, there's been many times of struggle. Um, and if it's been really challenging, perhaps you've called up that memory and recycled it again and again, rethinking, why am I here? And even though your, your memory is vivid of why you came, it may actually be rather different. It may be rather different by now from what actually happened. That may be, or maybe not, maybe not the case. It may be not nearly as subtle. Sometimes our memory problems are just simple forgetfulness or deliberate forgetfulness. Uh, we can choose to forget things that are important. This happens when husbands and wives forget their promises to one another or in any other kind of relationship. Um, it also happens in the church when we forget our covenant with one another and with the Lord. In any case, even with the best of intentions, we can go along forgetting what is most important in our lives, only to discover at some point along the way the costliness of our memory problems when it's too late. Let's talk about God's perfect memory in the rest of this passage, starting in verse 10. The one that we forget the most is the one whose memory is perfect, namely the Lord of heaven and earth. Because of Manasseh, because of forgetfulness, Israel abandoned God. But God didn't forget. In the end, Manasseh, forgetfulness, cost them the Babylonian exile. See verse 12. Because of Manasseh, because of forgetfulness, therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm bringing on Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the end of everyone who's who hears it will tingle. The ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. Because they have done what is evil in my sight and provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. In my memory, what happened on the Cooper River in South Carolina four years ago is really fuzzy. In God's memory, what happened on the day that Israel left Egypt is crystal clear. And so is the next day, and the day after that, 300,000 days down to the Babylonian exile. God remembers every one of them perfectly. God knows, God sees, his memory is perfect. Trauma sometimes causes us to remember things funny. My son and I were in a really dumb traffic accident this week, five car collision, we were rear-ended by someone who was rear-ended, by someone who was a hit-and-run drive-off. No damage to our car, no damage to us, um, but it was a mess. And then we stood outside for hours talking with the people who also were hit. It was evident that the trauma of the event caused them to remember things very differently, probably us too. We all had various stories of what happened. Um, trauma just has a way of warping our memories. And because of this, there's some questions that are being raised now about the judicial system, particularly when justice turns on the eyewitness testimony of one traumatized witness. 
There should be no doubt, however, regarding God's justice, particularly in the case of the Babylonian exile, because God sees everything, God knows everything, and his memory is perfect, which is why his justice is always perfect. And in this case, the Babylonian exile was Israel's just deserts. Still, when we think about God's perfect memory, it shouldn't be justice that first comes to mind, should it? Rather, it should be God's mercy, because if he sees everything and he knows everything, then it's remarkable, isn't it, that he doesn't intervene more often and more quickly. Yes, he did eventually send Israel into the Babylonian captivity, but he was patient with them for centuries beforehand. As a parent of five kids, it seems to me that God was far too lenient with his children of Israel. When I think about how they were able to misbehave, it's like when you see kids misbehaving in the store or something, and you know that they're spoiled rotten, and you're just so embarrassed for those parents. I'm kind of embarrassed for God when I read this story in 2 Kings, how lenient God was over century after century. But that's the, that's the identity of our loving Heavenly Father. He is so merciful. Ten Commandments tell us, uh, they warn us against idolatry, saying that uh, if you do this, it's going to be very costly to you and your family, perhaps to the third or fourth generation. Nevertheless, as soon as the Ten Commandments say that about God's justice, they're quick to say also this, God extends his steadfast love to the thousandth generation for those who love him and keep his commandments. Think about King David, who uh, sinned against the Lord and against his neighbor in some pretty spectacular ways, yet he repented and God forgave him. And his songwriting reflects this kind of uh, fabulous, wonderful mercy that God showed to him and to all who turned to him in repentance. Uh, here's an example from Psalm 30. Sing praises to the Lord, you saints of his. Give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. So, yes, God's memory is perfect, and that means that his justice is always appropriate and perfect. But more importantly, God also remembers that he made us, and he remembers that he loves us. He would much prefer to redeem us as his image bearers than to destroy us. He would prefer to show mercy rather than punish. College of the day, we said it today, uh, Lord, you never forsake those who make their boast of your mercy. If you have ever moved towards God, if you have ever prayed or reached out to him in some way, no matter how long ago, he remembers. He has a perfect memory of it. And in fact, if you ever moved towards him, it was because he first loved you. Unlike our memories that can change over time, God's memory doesn't change and God's love doesn't change. So no matter what you have said or done in your life, 
God longs to show you mercy, and all you have to do is turn to him. Think about those two criminals who were crucified on either side of Jesus, and we heard them in the gospel reading tonight. One joined with the crowd, hurling insults at Jesus, but the other turned to Jesus in humility and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was the Lord's perfect memory of that man and the promise that Jesus made to him on the cross that assured him of life after death. It's the very same for us today. Without God's perfect memory, we would have no assurance that he would remember us after death. But because God remembers perfectly, everyone who turns to him can be certain of his mercy. So let's talk about now godly memory and godly forgetfulness. If you'd like, turn over to Hebrews chapter 8. It's on page 864 in the church Bible. When God remembers, his memory is perfect. But that doesn't mean that he always remembers everything. And that's because sometimes God chooses to forget. And that's very, very good news for us. But sometimes God chooses to forget. In mercy, God chooses to forget the sins of all those who, like that man beside Jesus, died on the cross, turns to Jesus in faith. So we read in Hebrews 8, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant between God and humanity. And whenever we trust in Jesus, God is merciful toward our iniquities, and he remembers our sins no more. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. How does this work if God has a perfect memory? Only God knows. But what the Bible tells us is that somehow, on the cross, Jesus bore our sins so that we might be freed of them. And the result, as King David put in another song, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Somehow our Father cancels our debts, he frees us from bondage by forgetting our sins and remembering his Son. And he does this not so that we might go back out and, and squander our lives and continue in sin, but he does it so that we might remember who Remember who we were made to be. Remember that we are his image bearers, created to be like him, to shine like him. In short, that we might remember the way God remembers and forget the way God forgets. It's another way of thinking about being made in the image of God, to have a godly memory, and to have godly forgetfulness. Forgetfulness is part of the human condition. We can't be held responsible for remembering every single thing. Thank God for that. But we are responsible for remembering the important things. And the most important thing is God himself. How do we do that? The promise of a new covenant is the promise of a godly memory. Look again at Hebrews 8, starting uh, in verse 9. This new covenant, God says is not like the covenant that I made with Israel because they, they didn't remember it. They couldn't continue it. The new covenant, however, verse 10, would be like this. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all already know me. 
from the least of them to the greatest. And I'll be merciful toward their iniquities and remember their sins no more. Here's what God is saying. In short, because God chooses to forgive our sins, we are enabled to remember them and to remember his word. He fills us with his Holy Spirit who empowers us with a godly memory to keep the covenant, this new covenant that has been made between us and him. This doesn't mean that we don't have to meditate on God's word. Hebrews goes on to say, we must stop meeting together. We must gather together regularly to see how, how we can encourage one another towards love and good deeds. And when we gather together, we gather uh, to study, to meditate on God's uh, living word, that sharper than two-edged sword word of God. There's still plenty of work to do in meditating on God's word and attending to it and to the Lord himself. But we can do it with this knowledge, this good news in mind, the assurance that if we hide his word in our hearts, it's going to stick. It's going to linger there and not fade away. That's the power of the new covenant to work in us. And by the way, one of the reasons we worship in this funny way that we do, saying these same things over and over again every week, is that our liturgy is filled with scripture. It's sort of like the greatest hits of the Bible. And we're doing them over and over again as a way of hiding them in our hearts. And maybe that doesn't make much difference when you're riding the metro every day or you're at the computer every day or whatever it is you do. But when you find yourself suddenly in the hospital or in a foxhole or in a courtroom, suddenly these things just pop up, pop to mind, and are incredibly useful uh, when you're in a tight spot. It's what happens as we hide God's word in our hearts that it becomes, becomes powerful for us when we need it. And it reminds us of who we are and who God is. As we said in the song tonight, uh, we're reminded of the Lord who forgives all our iniquity and heals all our diseases and so on. The promise of the new covenant is the promise of a godly memory. It's also, secondly, a call to godly forgetfulness. We are to be just like the Lord in both. God says, I will be merciful to them through the new covenant. I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. If he says it, we should say it to one another. We mustn't be like the unmerciful servant whose enormous debt was canceled by the master, and then he refused to cancel a much smaller debt owed to him. The master that delivered the unmerciful servant to the jailer, the master then delivered the unmerciful servant to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And Jesus said, so also my heavenly Father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. We are called to forget those hurts and to forget. Sometimes this is easy. Sometimes this is very hard. Sometimes we can do it in an instant. Sometimes it takes a long time. That's okay. Um, justice is important too. But still, if God did not spare his only son in order that he might forget the wicked things that we have done, we also can choose to forget the wicked things that have been done to us by one another. We can and we must, otherwise we end up in jail in that prison of unforgiveness. 
which is oftentimes a lot worse than the hurt that we suffered. Don't fall into that trap. Forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you. So here's what we're saying from 2 Kings chapter 21 today. Because Jesus, God writes his law in our hearts so that we will never forgive him. And Manasseh, forgetfulness, doesn't have to be the end of our story. God fills us with his Holy Spirit and empowers us with both a godly memory and godly forgetfulness. So let's remember him, the God of justice and mercy who rescued us from forgetfulness to forgiveness. Will you pray with me? Thank you, God, for